Welcome to Live at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a former Major League knuckleballer whose life threw him a curve when he came face-to-face with death just a few months before heading to spring training. And literally one minute uh, after we got into the, the emergency room, uh, I had 99% blockage in the Widowmaker and uh, went down. You know, I, I, saw, I felt like I saw curtains coming down and I went out and, and consequently died three times and they brought me back to life. Not many people survived what I did. Welcome to Life at the Ballpark, sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball, from the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost and my guest today is Steve Sparks, former big league pitcher and current analyst on radio for the Houston Astros. Thanks, Sparky, for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Thanks for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Always good to see you when we come to Jupiter, Florida. Uh, and this is fun, man. What a job. And yeah. We get to talk about baseball. We get to develop relationships. All those things makes this not even feel like a job. Now, you've recently, I want to cover this first because you recently had a heart attack. I did. Give yeah. us, I mean, very recently. So how did that happen? And, and you're in spring training in March now, so obviously you got to feel pretty good. Right, yeah. December 11th, uh, just this past off season, uh, no symptoms, John. Uh, and I, I guess that's why I'm so eager to, to share the story is, is talk about no symptoms, no high cholesterol, no high blood pressure. It was family history that I didn't really understand the extent of. They ended up catching up to me, but I had just gotten done working out, walked outside. It was cool outside, and I felt a coolness in my chest, just right in the middle of my chest, but I felt, I felt like it was the air uh, from outside, and it continued. I was 10 minutes away from home. I felt some achiness in my left shoulder about halfway home, and then by the time I pulled in my dry, driveway, I was nauseous, and I went inside. Uh, I ended up uh, being nauseous. And telling my wife what was going on, and she had a nursing background. Oh, wow. And she goes, she was very adamant, you know, and I wanted to see if it would go away, but she was very adamant that we were going to go to the hospital and get things checked out because of her knowledge. And literally one minute uh, after we got into the, the emergency room, uh, I had 99% blockage in the Widowmaker and uh, went down. You know, I, I saw, I felt like I saw curtain, curtains coming down while she was trying to get people's attention in the waiting room. And uh, I mouthed to her that, you know, I think I'm going down. And I went out and and consequently died three times. And they brought me back to life. Uh, And a lot of people tell me, nurses and doctors from around the cardiac rehab where where I went for two and a half months after that was that uh, not many people survived what I did. So um, I was very lucky. You know, I'm very lucky my wife uh, was adamant about getting me to the, the hospital and, and I'm lucky to tell and share that story with, with people that you know maybe it's just a $110 test to, to get your uh, calcium score you know just little things like that or, or know a little bit more about your family history uh, to stay on top of things. Well that's good advice that's yeah. good advice. Now you're a baseball lifer right you played you played in the big leagues for 10 years mm-hmm. you were in the minors for what? 10 for 10 years also. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you're a guy who was really devoted to excelling in your craft. Go back to the beginning for me. How'd you fall in love with baseball? You know, I fell in love with baseball, I think because my brother was five years older than me and he was a baseball player and I loved him to death. I idolized my brother and to, to be around him and his friends, I would do anything. 
And I think it was when I was nine years old, I got a morning paper route and my brother had a paper route and I was too young to, to really have that paper route, but uh, I had it and I spent, until I went to college, probably 80% of my money on baseball cards. Oh my gosh. You know, and it was just a, a lifelong love, you know, and I would spread out those cards probably three times a year all on the floor of my in my bedroom yeah. and rearrange them yeah. and, and study the backs of them and, and things like that. And I had a very encouraging father and mother, you know, who didn't make me feel like they loved me any more, any less, uh, depending on how I did in sports or, or anything, really. And I, I think it was that. And, and my dad never missing a day of work and, and my brother being such a hard worker that set kind of the stage for to be a pretty disciplined player and uh, to maximize my talents. But uh, the love of baseball is still there, man. I just really love coming to the ballpark and, mm-hmm. and trying to understand how, even you know, this day of age, there's so much learning going on uh, with the differences in the game, you know, with the launch angles and how to make the ball spin in, in different directions mm-hmm. more efficiently. Uh, it's fa- fascinating to me to stand by the bullpens during spring training and watch Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole in these great elite athletes maximize their abilities uh and it's great it's great to try to learn ways as a as an analyst on the radio to describe Mm -hmm. uh, without overcomplicating things but Mm -hmm. to describe to the everyday listener on how these guys are are doing it well you were drafted in the fifth round Mm -hmm. so you were you were a good baseball player to be drafted in the fifth round and then you were drafted in the brewers organization i was and so you played 10 years I did. So Bob Humphrey might be, uh, for St. Louis Cardinal fans, uh, a familiar name. He was on the 1964 World Championship team, but uh, he was our minor league director. And I had gone, I think, John, six or seven years in the minor leagues, and uh, I wasn't going to be a big leaguer. Let's put it that way. And in the double-A level, uh, I was stalling out at that level, and I was having a hard time getting through that level. And you could sense that. You could sense that. Um, you know what? Because people were... You, you could probably people, sense that, but you always put that in the back of your yeah. mind as a player because you're going to forge ahead and you're sure. never going to you know, relent. But the Brewers came to me, and it was Bob Humphrey, one of those uh, people, Bruce Mano, uh, who some people might uh, remember as a, as a GM and an assistant GM in the major leagues with Atlanta and the Milwaukee Brewers. They came up with the idea that I might be a good candidate for to be a knuckleball pitcher, even though I'd never thrown one in my entire life. And part of the reason was, was that my mechanics were pretty simple. I had a pretty good resolve as a person. My, my uh, I, I wasn't too high strung, which is imperative to be able to throw a knuckleball. You can't be a high strung type pitcher. And there's Half of the pitchers that we'll see today mm-hmm. here at the ballpark are, are more of that type of personality. Mm-hmm. you got to be very chilled and laid back. All of the good knuckleballers mm-hmm. are. And the other was that uh, I was shorter in stature. And to be a little bit shorter, you can stay behind the ball a little bit longer, which is easier to take the spin off the ball. And that's what a knuckleball is all about. Yeah. So they gave me a plan. They gave me a three-year plan, 30% wow. the first year. Wow. 50% the second year, and 70% the third year, and we're going to see where we're at after that. And by the end of that third year, I was knocking at the door. That's a big investment in you. Uh, that was. It was a big commitment. But, yeah. You know, I wouldn't say investment because when you're paying minor league <laughs> ball players, it's not a big monetary okay. Uh, okay. commitment. But uh, for me, it meant a lot, you know, that uh, they were going to be patient with me. And it was up to me to figure out what to do. And I'll tell you when I got better. 
I got worse throwing at 30% and 50%. I got better when I went to winter ball in Mexico one year and threw it 100%. Wow. When I started to throw it 3-0 and count, 3-1 and count, 2-0 and count, bases loaded. It, when, once you start throwing that knuckleball in tough yeah. counts, yeah. that's when you make those strides. Right, right. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then you were brought up to the big leagues. And you were, the, you were in the big leagues for 10 years. Is, yeah. there a, is there a moment in your big league career that you consider a highlight? I think it's pitching in the playoffs for the only time that I got a chance to go to the playoffs, and that was with the Oakland A's. And the one game that I got in, it was in the division series at Fenway Park. And I remember walking from our dugout toward the bullpen before the game. And remember the rock group? Uh, Boston, yeah, sure. So they were in Boston, and yeah. they were playing on the concourse. This little mini concert. Oh wow! And I loved Boston. Wow! And they're playing, and it sounded great. And I remember kind of getting the chills as I yeah. was walking across the outfield, and they just broke off off of one of their songs right into the the national anthem. Huh. And I just got, oh my gosh! And then this huge flag started unraveling down the green monster, and I just remember thinking, it it can't get any better than this. And literally, 25 minutes later, I was in the game. And Tim Hudson started the game for us, and uh, he had injured himself in between innings. And after the first inning, here comes the knuckleballer out from right field. And it was just a surreal moment, getting to pitch four innings and pitching pretty well. And that one game in the playoffs, I, I would have to hang my hat on as being the biggest thrill I've ever had. Then you had Tommy John surgery in yeah. 1997. And I don't know, uh, was Tommy John's surgery fairly common? In 1997? It was getting there. Yeah. You know, of course, uh, not like it is today, but uh, they had the protocol in place where they knew how to rehab it, certainly, for guys who have had success coming off that injury. Uh, that's where we were at at that point. And I've always been very disciplined, so I was going to s- stay very strict to doing exactly what we were supposed to do the entire way. And coming off that Tommy John surgery, uh, it was kind of a fluke injury. How I, I ended up getting hurt was covering first base on a double play in spring training, my last start of the spring. And the throw was wild. Uh, went toward the uh, screen to get the ball and throw it home. Mike Matheny was our catcher with the, with the Brewers at the time. He was holding his arms up to hold the throw. And I stopped my arm and, and tore the ligament off the bone. So mm. uh, that was it. And one year later, after my Tommy John surgery to the day, uh, I was pitching again in the major leagues for the Angels. So only one uh, year, one year, talk about yeah. a year and a half now. And I think maybe because I, I was a knuckleball pitcher, wasn't yeah. relying on velocity, or right. uh, I think that that helped me get there a little quicker. But it was exactly one year. Coming up next, Astros broadcaster Steve Sparks shares what it's like to actually make a top ten list. This one for goofiest sports injuries. Remember in the year 2000 when they had Y2K and they were talking about top 10 or top 100, this and that, and just every category you think of. And when they're talking about the top 10 stupidest sports injury of the 20th century, Steve Sparks is number four. You're listening to this podcast because you have an interest in baseball. If you own a business, what do you think people who call you have an interest in? Yeah, your business. So you need a message on hold. Now, tell your callers about your products and services, locations and hours, special offers and more with a message on hold now. We've been providing telephone on hold messages since 1992, and we can do one for you. Get your custom message on hold now at messageonholdnow.com. Message on hold now. 
Com. And now back to my conversation with Steve Sparks, radio analyst for the Houston Astros. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. You tell a fascinating story, if you don't mind sharing, about a phone book. Mm. That's interesting. <laughs> tell me. I've heard this yes, before. You have heard this you know, before. I'll expand on this a little Please bit. Please do. So I was a longtime minor leaguer, as we've yeah. discussed, and I got my invitation to Major League Spring Training for the very first time. I was probably 28 years old, maybe 29 years old. And Sal Bando was our general manager with the Milwaukee Brewers. Phil Garner was our manager. And Sal Bando thought it'd be a good idea uh, to have this motivation group come to spring training. So these guys came, and it was very entertaining. And uh, you've seen them before, the, the feats of strength uh, to, to motivate. And they were called Radical Reality, a Christian group, and they would bend the bars uh, with their teeth. They would blow up hot water bottles and burst. And the other thing was they would tear phone books. And the next day, there was three of us, three or four of us in, in, uh, in our clubhouse, and we were just talking about it because we had a rain delay in Chandler, Arizona, and it was Jesse Orozco, Mike Fetters, myself, and somebody else was sitting there, and we were saying, man, how did they, how did they tear these phone books? So we looked off to the side, and back then we had a, a stupid payphone sure. in our clubhouse sure. back then, and uh, there were some phone books over there. So there we is. all grabbed one. We were trying to see if there was a secret to it or if there was a trick to tearing a phone book, and nobody, <laughs> and nobody was having any luck. So we continued to talk for a little bit, so I started to cheat. And I started doing a few pages at a time, got mine started. Once you get it started, you can go, yeah. give it a go. Okay. So once I got a little bit of a, a tear in this thing, uh, I stood up and I started to ham it up. And before long, everybody in the clubhouse was standing around me, chanting my name, sure. Sparky, yeah. Sparky. And I'm ripping this phone book and I dislocate my left shoulder. Oh my god! I dislocate my non-throwing Your shoulder. Your non-throwing shoulder. So here's how the story came out. Yeah. The story came out that I had been in the minor leagues all these years that this group, it, it, we were doing this, and I got so excited that I jumped <laughs> up on the stage with them and I dislocated my throwing shoulder. And that's how the story came yeah. out. And that's yeah. the way the story has stuck yeah. forever. And you remember yeah. in the year 2000 when they had Y2K and they were talking about top 10 or top 100 this and that and just every category you can think of and when they're talking about the top 10 stupidest sports injury <laughs> of the 20th century steve sparks is number four well so well. in literally every year there's always two or three people in sports that do something very silly uh -huh. or something bizarre yeah. to, to go through an injury yeah. and here comes that list again yeah. and i vacillate between yeah. four and seven every single time and i hear from all my ex-teammates yeah. every time and the phone starts to ring and the phone starts to ring my gosh yeah, it's funny that is really wild um you also have a fascinating story about how you got your job with the Astros. I mean, we all have a story about how we got into broadcasting, right. and, they're, and they're usually unusual. For me, I happen to be playing baseball, and the local, the local radio station owner coached the team. But you, you, were, off, you were a retired big leaguer. Yeah, and and you were in Houston, right? And uh, tell us the story. I, I was at a charity golf tournament. Yeah, and uh, longtime Houston Astros broadcaster and uh, Bill Brown, who many people know, he's with the Cincinnati Reds when he started his career with the Big Red Machine, and one of the nicest men I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, I've become very close friends, and he's been a mentor for sure. But uh, our wives were sitting together at uh, at the dinner for this charity golf tournament, and. 
Diana Diana Brown just happened to say, you know what? I think the Astros, who I'd never played for, mm-hmm. but we lived in Houston, mm-hmm. uh, were looking for somebody to do their their pregame and postgame stuff on television. The, uh, an ex ball player to do some analytics or some analysis because they didn't have anybody around at, at that time. So they were looking for it. So uh, we ended up giving us the producer's name and. I had no desire to do this at all, but my wife talked me into calling this this gentleman, and we had lunch. And she Matt, wants you out of the house. She wanted me out of the house. She was definitely <laughs> sick of me after 20 years of professional baseball. We moved, by the way, 60 times our oh, first eight years we were gosh. married. So she was a champ. She's a saint. But, uh, yeah, I had lunch uh, with the produ- executive producer for Fox back there in Houston, and the next night I was on TV. The next night? Next night. So... I was analyzing for seven years pre and post game show, and uh, I owe it to Bill Brown, you know, uh, because I loved it. And in 2012, that was Milo Hamilton's last year's uh, okay. of his Hall of Fame career on the radio, and of course with the Atlanta Braves, uh, Chicago Cubs, and uh, of course the Houston Astros. He was there for a long time, and uh, one of the iconic figures in baseball. But uh, he retired, and they asked myself, or they asked me, and. Uh, a lot of other people to, to interview for that job, and I got it as an analyst. And the funny thing about that, John, is, you know, you, do, you know, as a player, you don't go to school for that typically. Right. Uh, you don't know much about it, and you don't even listen to games like you listen to games. Sure. You listen to the games for the action of what's going on, mm-hmm. but not the mechanics mm-hmm. of a broadcast mm-hmm. like you guys, right? Right. And when they asked me to do this, uh, I got the job, and I was looking forward to it, and, and it was two days before pr- spring training started. They said, by the way, we forgot to tell you this, I think, uh, but you're, you're required, we want you to do three innings of play-by-play as well. And I go, you got to be kidding me. So you talk about getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And you're talking about extremely lucky yeah. that this team, the Houston Astros, stunk at that time. Because 2013 <laughs> and 14, the Astros stunk right along with me. I mean, yeah. it was just trial and error and uh, I don't think the average person can understand how quickly the game goes when you're trying to explain it. It, it just takes a it takes a while, just like a player, to slow things down and you know even lag a little bit because people can't see the action. Yeah, but right. and to be descriptive, you know, we hear from blind people and we yeah. hear from people who want to feel like they're at the ballpark because yeah. they can't get there. Yeah, that's our job, and it's touching to know that we have an impact on a lot of people uh, doing something we love so much. So what was harder to learn, play-by-play or the knuckleball? I think play-by-play. <laughs> I, I really think it was. I mean, it, just, it certainly wasn't natural. Uh-huh. And throwing a baseball was something I've been doing since I was two. Sure. Um, but never in my wildest dreams did I think I was going to be doing this, and, and let alone to be doing three innings of play-by-play for uh, a really exciting team in a couple years' time. Well, one of the things I enjoy about listening to you and Robert is your sense of humor. Mm. You can tell that both of you love the game. And it's a long season. And when you spend time with the broadcasters right. day after day, that sense of humor and that sense of the love of the game really makes a big difference. It's, it's almost, John, like you forget when the, our microphones are turned off and on. So it's not just Robert Ford and myself. It's also our engineer. There's three of us that do this thing. And we're together together. We sit next to each other on the planes. We eat together practically every night. We have a lot of lunches together. I mean, we're together. This is a, a, a trio. Mm-hmm. And it, it almost just carries over. You know, you go to the break, 
you know, in between innings, and we're kind of laughing around, and we continue the the same banter in between the innings, mm-hmm. and it comes back on, and okay, here's a game, but it doesn't seem like there's any mm-hmm. any time that we're really off, yeah. and, and I think it's because we're having a good time, and I appreciate yeah. you saying that because uh, that's certainly what we want to convey that uh, this is a very fun, entertaining game, and it's tough to be serious all the time, and there's time and place certainly to to be very serious. Uh, but it's usually in the latter stages of a game, right? Right. right so you right. got to entertain a little bit. Well, this is an interesting season for the Houston Astros, mm-hmm. too, isn't it? And your job is to be there every day to call play-by-play, to be a connection between the fans and the game. And obviously, with the news that's come out recently, right? Doesn't I mean? How do you when you're going through when you're going through the season? What are going to be the challenges for you in in putting things into context mm-hmm. or? Uh, you know, obviously, this is a very sensitive topic, but uh, how does it affect your job? Well, I think it's just to be really, really honest and, and real. And I think when I have one-on-one conversations with a lot of the fans, it's I'm disappointed, they're disappointed, and everybody agrees that they didn't have to to do it. They were a very talented team, so that's frustrating. So there's disappointment and frustration there, but there's also this part where good people make mistakes, right? And that's what we want to teach our kids. You know, that's life is, is good people make mistakes, including you and I, John. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's on a, on a grander stage. So my job as an analyst, I believe, is try to stick to the facts as much as possible. And if there's booing going on and somebody's listening in a car, not to ignore it, mm-hmm. because we've got to talk about what the players are feeling and, yeah. and how hurtful that might be or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe deserving right mm-hmm. for sure but mm-hmm. uh how do they cope with this mm-hmm. and that's my job is to try to get in there a little bit mm-hmm. uh psychoanalyze maybe mm-hmm. a little bit on you know there's some sensitivity going on there nobody likes to be booed and how do they react mm-hmm. so that's going to be the big thing we think you know knowing these guys and we know that they really care for each other in a sense that could be very galvanizing as a team just like it was very galvanizing as a team when they no longer thought about themselves as much, we thought, when the hurricane hit in 2017, and it was more about, you know, doing it for the city. Steve Sparks, thanks for sharing about your life at the ballpark. My pleasure, John. Always great to see you. Listen each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends.